This morning is November 27th, it is 2005, and our message this morning is risk assessment. Y'all know what risk managers are? I call them risk managers in business. These are people who are paid for the purpose of determining what risk they have in business. Within a business, if somebody's injured, the risk manager helps mitigate the cost. Their job's really to contain cost in a business. If uh, you have a risk manager and you're in a retail store, part of his job might be inventory control, uh, thievery, all of those things. He's to assess the risk in your business. Well, that's going to be our topic this morning, but I wanted to cover something with you that in Louisiana we would call lanyap. It's just a little something extra. And what it amounts to is there's some things I want to share with you that are off-sermon topic this morning that I just want you to get. I'll probably preach about them later. But uh, not today. I'm just going to introduce some ideas to you. You remember in Matthew 5:19, Jesus said that He didn't come to abolish the law, but He came to fulfill it. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you needed to teach others to practice the law. And if you want to be least in the kingdom, then don't do these things. That's basically what Matthew 5:19 says. I learned about the words in Hebrew for abolish and fulfill, and I thought this would bless you. In English. To abolish something means totally do away with it. To fulfill something can mean to fill its purpose full, to complete it, to bring it to a place of end, all of these things. Well, it's interesting that the Bible was not written in English. Well, not even written in Greek, although that's a debatable matter, but I really don't believe it was written in Greek. And the Hebrew that wrote the book of Matthew, uh, uh, Matthew Levi, a Hebrew tax collector, when he said abolish and fulfill, he meant something a little different than the Greek world or the English world. See, Jews were a lot like we are. And where there were two Jews, there were at least three opinions. You know, in every room with, with Jews, there were diversity of opinions. And what would happen is David and Gabe would be talking about the law, and David would say, Now, if you flip on a light switch on the Sabbath, buddy, you have done work. Gabe says, no, you destroy the law with that interpretation. That's wrong. If you touch the light switch, you've done work. And with my interpretation, we fulfill the law. The way that you would chide each other in a religious debate was to say that the other person's interpretation destroyed the law, which is obviously an overstatement for effect, and yours fulfilled the law. What Jesus is telling the crowd there is, don't you think that I've come to destroy the law in parentheses, with my interpretation, I have come to fulfill it or to complete it or teach you its true meaning. And that makes perfect sense when you move right on into Matthew and say, you've heard it said, but I say. He's giving you the correct interpretation. I tell you this because you'll hear all kind of crazy teachings about what the word fulfill means. That Jesus filled the purpose of the law full so the law no longer had any purpose. That's not at all what a Hebrew had in mind. One more on that note. Binding and loosing. I've gotten into the habit of loosing angels when I pray, binding demons when I pray. Y'all heard me do that for years, right? Well, I'm sure God honors my ignorance like He honors so many things in my life. If I can call Him Jesus all of my life instead of Yeshua or Yeshu, then I imagine He can put up with my binding and loosing. When God told Peter, when Jesus told Peter that He had the authority to bind and loose and then later told the 72 they had the authority to bind and loose, this was another Hebraism that we have gotten wrong as it's been translated from Greek and into English. To bind and loose meant to permit or to allow. 
What, what they were concerned about is how do we decide these doctrinal matters? We've always had a Sanhedrin. We've always had a synagogue. We've always had Jewish leaders that gave us correct interpretation. And what do we do? Peter has just said, Man, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Do you remember what Jesus praised him for? He said, Man, this wasn't revealed to you from men. It's revealed to you from heaven. This is why Peter was given the keys to the kingdom. Not just Peter. The other 72 were as well. What Jesus is teaching them is, guys, you, my disciples, my church on earth, will have the authority to say what is bound on earth and what is permit or what is disallowed. Bound is disallowed and loosed is to allow. What he's telling them is, you as the church are going to have the opportunity to hear from me and pronounce my decisions. You will not need the Jewish Sanhedrin for this. Doesn't that make so much more sense? James and Peter both bind and loose in the Scripture. In Acts 15, you see it. They bound Gentiles from doing four characteristic pagan sins and they loosed them from doing other things. Binding and loosing. Same, same exact thing. In fact, it's the same words. You know, it's just that we have a Greek translation and there was probably a Hebrew original text that we're missing. But I hope those are little nuggets that will help you as you read. It's funny how far off we get into some different teachings because we don't understand the original culture and how protective we can be of our own little theology. You know, I've often in my life had the idea that what I have is right, what everybody else has is wrong, and if you present something that's different, buddy, you just need to get the revelation. Well, that would make me the Pope, and I don't want to be him. I never like that hat he wears. The truth is, all of us need to be where Peter was, willing to receive from heaven and praised for that. So if you hear different ideas in theology, don't run off and throw a stone at them. Somebody tells you they're kingdom now. Somebody else says they're a preterist. Somebody else says, no, we're a dispensationalist. Give them some slack. God's working with all of us within our own framework. And the truth is, there's a little bit of truth in most of these theories. You know, it's our job to chew up the meat, spit out the bones. It's not wrong to read something outside of your denomination. We don't even have a denomination. It's not wrong to stretch your boundaries. It'd be wrong if you get caught up in the occult or some legitimate heresy. If any of you begin denying Jesus' bodily resurrection, if any of you start teaching demonic teachings like transubstantiation, trying to feed each other a cannibalistic form of Jesus pill, then we'll deal with that. But I don't think that anybody's heart in here is going to lead them in that way. I want the truth. You want the truth? Sometimes in exploring the truth, you're going to come across some things that aren't great. You know, I'm reading books all of the time and I'm happy if there's two or three good chapters among 40. That's okay. You know, I hope that if you hear a hundred sermons out of mine, at least a few of them are good. You know, I mean, that's what I hope. But I'm not deluded enough to think that every word that's ever come out of my mouth is inerrant. God didn't make us that way. He works more through our errors than anything else. This morning's topic was risk assessment. I want to talk to you about risk assessment because what is most important to me in this church is that little guys like Judah, big guys like Matthew, learn exactly what they're called to. They get in their field and then they perform that. That's what our job is. We're here. We're saved, called, passed for a purpose. I've preached on that a million times. We're not saved just to impress ourselves, not praised or saved just so that we can sit in a pew and declare the wonders of our intellect. We were saved for a purpose. Turn with me to Hebrews 13. 
No pages are turning. Y'all better turn. Y'all working on computers this morning, huh? Hebrews 13. Huh? <laughs> yeah. The Spirit will show you all things and He showed you where I was going, huh? I want you to also think about something and obviously my mind's in lots of places this morning. Y'all going to have to forgive me for that. But the counsel of the Word is in no way contrary to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in no way contrary to the counsel of the Word. The two work in perfect unison with one another. Because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of, the Jesus, of Jesus and He is the Spirit of the Father. He's interchangeable in the Word. You see Him addressed both ways. So if Jesus is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus, the two can't be conflicting each other. You don't have to worry about that. In fact, one can help you balance the other. This is why the Father looks for people who worship in spirit and in truth. The idea is not that you be so spiritual that you're not grounded in truth and not that you be so intellectually grounded in the truth that you have no spiritual leading. They're supposed to work in tandem with each other. So don't you worry that if you learn too much of the Word or get too rooted in the Word that that will somehow hinder your leading of the Spirit. It will enhance it. And don't you worry that if you get too far off into leading of the Holy Spirit that somehow or another you won't be grounded in the Word. The two work together. Have they been out of balance in churches before? Sure, but it always comes from a departure from the Word or a departure from the leading of the Spirit. You know, you can be led by your Spirit and call it God. Charismatics are good at that. We justify everything we do as if it were God. You know, you all in Hebrews 13? And what was our topic this morning? Risk assessment. In the insurance industry, there are risk assessment people. Their job is to determine with your particular claim what that's going to cost the company and then make their actions determined upon that. I'm going to find out Christians do that in the kingdom. Sometimes we're risk assessors. We'll get into that more. Y'all in Hebrews 13? Hebrews 13, verse 8. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, that is such a heavy statement. It says, through the blood of an eternal covenant. I want you to understand something. Without going through the nine covenants or seven covenants or eight covenants or fifteen covenants, whatever it is, depending on how the theologians split it up, somewhere before time began, the Bible says, at a point before time began, God purposed within Himself to do certain things. And one of them was to redeem this creation, to use a man to do it. And it would require a perfect man. It would require God to become flesh and do this for us because we couldn't do it for ourselves. The Bible speaks about this as an eternal covenant. If Jesus' blood was precious, and I believe that it was, the most precious substance on the planet, I want you to think about what that says about you. What's that say about you, Brad? Are you, Cassidy? If God was willing to shed the most precious substance on the planet to redeem you and along with you this world system, 
you must be pretty valuable. You don't spend the most valuable thing you have on something that's worthless, do you? I mean, what does a man have besides his own life to give? No greater love hath one man for another than to lay down his life. I just want you to get an idea of how God esteems you. He must esteem you very highly to pour Himself out for you. Not only to walk this earth as a man and humble himself as a servant, but even to the point where he submitted himself to death on a cross, pouring out his blood. I'd say he esteems you very highly. If you have a low self-image and you have no confidence, stop it at sin. I want you to get that right now. You'll never get a pat on the back from me say, oh, it's all right, you're really a wonderful person. The Bible already says that. You need to walk in faith and stop your sinning. Okay? The Bible says you have been made competent. Paul said that. Now, Paul, a guy who was learned, trained, all those things, said, when compared with Jesus, that is all trash because He has made me competent. I want you to get that. Quit walking around with a low opinion of yourself. Quit thinking lowly about all the things you can't do. Stand up on the Word and do what God says you can do. He esteems you. Now, I'm not going to put on pom-poms up here this morning and dance around like a cheerleader to try to encourage you to do what God says do. The Word says it. Believe it and do it. Be man enough, be woman enough to take Jesus at His Word and just do it. When the devil tells you you're lowly, you're worthless, you can't, you won't, you never have, you just let him say, well, yeah, the Word says this. Get out of my life, devil. When he stands up to you, hit him with the Word. That should be the end of this story. We shouldn't have counseling sessions week after week after week. Take the counsel of the Word, be strong, courageous, full of faith, with no fear, and move on. Let's not spend our whole life downcast, depressed. My life's just not going well. Well, I guess not. You refuse to live the Word. Live the Word and your life will go well, I promise. Amen. Go well in every situation. But that's not why we went to Hebrews 13.20. He says something beautiful here. In 13.20 says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing His will. God desires to equip you. He didn't just save you. He didn't just set you aside from the fires of hell. He desires that you be equipped. That comes in lots of ways. Can anybody name a way equipping comes? By the Holy Spirit. How, how do you get equipped by the Holy Spirit, Cassidy? Being indwelled with the Holy Spirit will edify you. It will build you up. What are some other ways you're equipped? Leads you in truth through the Word. So you might have to study some to get equipped, right? You might have to learn a little bit about God to be equipped. Usually when you ask a group of Christians, how do you get equipped? They'll tell you by studying to show thyself approved. You ask a group of charismatic Christians like us, how do you get equipped? And you get this answer. You get filled with the Holy Ghost. Are both important? Yeah, that's the Spirit and the truth we talked about earlier. There is one that nobody ever talks about though. How do you get equipped? By walking through trials and succeeding by the grace of God. You find out that equipping in God's eyes means that you have been tried, tested, and approved. That is equipped. Equipped is not what you know. It's not how powerful you are as Casper the Ghost in a spiritual realm. All of those things are good. Do you need knowledge? Yes. Do you need empowerment of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Are they any good to you if you don't put your faith into practice by living it? Big resounding no. 
and that's where most of the church is. You've heard the great sermons. You've felt the tingling power of the Holy Spirit. The hair stood up on the back of your neck. Warm, rushing water flowed all over your body. Then you went home, watched Alias, and went to bed. This is not the godly life that we're supposed to have. Just feel good Christianity. Run, be encouraged. Run here, hear a prophecy. Run there, get in God. Boy, I heard Bishop T.D. Jakes preach a message and woo! That's great. What'd you do? Well, I believe that Jesus is this and I believe that and I believe this. Like they say in Louisiana, you can believe that. What good does it do if you don't do anything? God desired to equip you for a purpose. You were equipped for a purpose. Now, here's my favorite part of this. My wife recently made a wedding cake. She does that sometimes. I love weddings. Matthew preached at an awesome wedding. Awesome wedding. We all should watch that videotape sometime soon. Verse 20. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing His will. May you be equipped, He said. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him. May He work in us what is pleasing to Him. There is obedience required for this. God does not force you to do what is pleasing to Him. If He did, I guarantee you our lives would be different. Most of the time, we work in us to do what is pleasing to us. This prayer that the writer of Hebrews is praying over the people is, may God work in you what is pleasing to Him. My wife was making a wedding cake, and I noticed when you take eggs and flour and all these things, you have to press your hands deep down into this dough. You have to turn it over and over and over again. You knead it. You press it. You mix it together. You are working things into it. God's hands have got to be in your life working into you something that is not naturally there. He wouldn't have to work it into you if you were already came out of the womb equipped to do everything that He wanted you to do. He has to work it into you. And what is our response typically? Well, that's just not my personality. Well, Gabe does that, but that's not how I am. You only say that because you're that way. I'm this way. God wants to work into us things that are not presently there. I love it. I love it in a secular workplace. You find yourself in a position you don't want to be in over and over and over and then go, why am I here? Well, I don't know. Why do you think you're here? Well, I'm just here because of this. Maybe God is trying to work something into our lives. So well, I hate to talk to this person. Oh, well, bingo. You don't like confrontation? The Bible says speak the truth in love. Is that hard to do? Oh, Lord, have mercy. I never found out how hard it was to do until I got into ministry. You look at a grown man, somebody many years your senior, and have to tell them something that is true in love. And they look at you like a monkey staring at a computer. What are you talking about? So you tell them again. And they look at you like they don't understand. Maybe they get mad and run off. These are hard things to do. Peace. Peace in the church is something you have to pursue. Trust me. The devil works at every turn to divide. To get Brad mad at Gabe, Gabe mad at Mandy, Mandy mad at David, and Cassidy mad at all of them. And Judah ready to fight. The devil's working at that full time. And it's like peace is eluding us always. It's around every corner and you have to work after it. You have to fight for it. And all the while, God is working something into you. 
He's pushing. Now you say, well, He's working that into your life. He's not working that into mine. That's absolutely right. He might have to work patience into me and work persistence into you. He might have to work persistence into Cassidy and boldness into Brad. He might have to work faithfulness into Judah and work mercy into Jennifer. Who knows? But He's working in our lives. You say, I keep going around this mountain. I'm always in this position. Well, then get a clue. God's trying to work something in you. Let's get it right this time. You say, well, I, I just don't want to. Well, you don't want to be conformed into the image of Christ? Give up. Go home. Get out of the church. Get out of Jesus. Quit wasting our time. You know, if God's God, serve Him. If Baal's God, go serve Him. Nobody's begging you to be in the church or to be in Jesus. You are supposed to have a driving, sustaining, pushing force in your life to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. Think about those words. Conformed into the likeness of Jesus. That means you are not presently formed in the likeness of Jesus. You are being formed. You are being reshaped. Your whole life is being reshaped now. God is working in you to do certain things. Now, it's interesting. What's Romans 8.28 say? I thought about reading it, but I thought, my God, if they can't quote this, I'm going to give up and go home. God works in all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. This was spoken to a nation, Israel, at a time when the nation was proverbially, I don't know if I can say this, proverbially going to hell in a handbasket. It looked like nothing was good happening to the nation from a spiritual standpoint. And the writer is encouraging people, no, God works in this, in all things, for good. So why is it every negative thing, seemingly negative thing that comes into our life? You've got a job that's hard for you to do. You've got a boss you can't talk to. You've got a wife that's difficult to relate to. You've got kids that are wild. Whatever it is, an electric bill that's too high. This is God working in your life to work things into you. And if you believe the Scripture, it's going to work for your good. It's just your job to get with the program to see it with a smile on your face, to see it, embrace it, and want the change. Quit fighting to be the way that you are. It's not okay. You need to learn that. Quit fighting to be the way you are. It is not okay. Christians are in a constant state of change. So, well, Eric's just that way. Well, give me some time. I'm changing. If I'm an obnoxious, arrogant donkey today, tomorrow hopefully I'll be something else. That's what we're in the process of doing. The Bible teaches us in Hebrews 13 that God has called you. He wants to equip you and work into you good things. Think of that like kneading dough, just like I told you. This not an easy process means that you're going to get pushed and squeezed and outside things are going to have to come inside and things that are inside are going to have to go outside. This is a constant process in Christianity. Don't act like something strange is happening to you. Your life will be full of this because you want to be conformed to His purpose. The more you want it, the more rapidly it will happen. <laughs> that means that Christians who really love the Lord and are set out pressing heavenward, pressing with everything you have for God's kingdom in your life, this will happen at a faster rate. You look to your left and right and go, well, there never seems to be any trouble in their life or their life. Or why is it that the wicked guy who lives two streets over has total peace in his life? 
Well, because he's content with the way that he is. He's destined for hell and that's just where he's going. Those of us that are trying to be reshaped into something righteous are in a constant state of being stretched, pulled, pushed, twisted. That's normal Christianity. It's been normal since day one and it's normal now. Turn with me to Ephesians. Go mad at me? I want you to know that I love you, but it wouldn't matter if you were. (laughs) It really wouldn't. We're going to stand on the truth, speak the truth in love, and move on. I mean, I'm trying to learn now, while the ministry is small, to preach what Jesus has to preach, to stand on the truth, and forgive me for saying it in this way, but let hell worry about the consequences. The reason we titled this Risk Managers or Risk Assessment is too many times decisions are made in the kingdom based on the consequences. The Lord moves on you, says, go lay hands on Bobby. He's going to stand up and walk. And you first thing that hits your mind, first thing that hits everybody's mind, is just whether you dwell on it or not, is what if he doesn't get up and walk? At what point did God tell you that was your concern? He never did. Your job is to be obedient. Say, well, if I say that to my boss, I'll get... So what? So what? Quit worrying about the risk at every turn. Y'all in Ephesians? We're going to be in Ephesians 4. This is on page 1300 in your Thompson chain. If you're looking for Ephesians, you can remember it by Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. General Electric Power Company. Great and exalted Preston Coles. He hates that. Poor guy. And I hadn't seen him in a few years and I'm still doing it. So... Y'all in uh, Ephesians 4? Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord. I want you to think about that. Just the first sentence. The man writing this epistle for you is sitting in prison. How did your week go this week? (laughs) When you sat around with your relatives, did you whine about physical aches and pains? Did you whine about how work was going? Did you whine about not having enough money? Did you sit around and have a great big pity party? The man who wrote this epistle to you was sitting in prison for your benefit when he wrote it. And I want you to, I challenge you to find a single complaint in the New Testament written by Paul. A single complaint about his comfort, his welfare, or anything else. He was a man just like you and me. And if you can't picture him panty whining, about things, then you shouldn't either. Find a complaint by Jesus about his physical well-being anywhere in the Word. And if you can find that, then we'll let you justify yourself and you can whine all you want. But if you can't, you should have a sign over your head that says no whining. Okay? Does this mean that I'm saying you never acknowledge that you're sick? That you never acknowledge that you have hardship? No, not at all. I'm saying get the right perspective in it. Quit glorifying and looking for pity in things that are sin. You know, we get into this habit. Old people are the worst, and I don't mind telling you right now. they got nothing to talk about other than the pint of fluid that was removed from their back, the bunion on their toe, and their friend that died yesterday. This ought not be so. Our lives are full of good things that we can concentrate on. If you can't find a single good thing, then look at your buddy and say, Gabe, praise God we're going to be resurrected. Find something good to dwell on. 
I want to be very honest. There are times I hate to get in large groups of people because I just almost can't tolerate what's being spoken about. And sometimes I contribute to it. It's my fault. But this is not what Christians do. Don't sit around and whine. Don't do it. Okay? As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. My goodness. Think about how heavy that is. Do you remember where we started with this message? The most precious substance in the universe was the blood of Jesus. It was shed for you. In other words, we took something of value beyond measurement and spent it on you. That means that you're highly valued. Now, what's your responsibility? To live a life that's worthy of what was just done for you. Is that even within your ability? No, of course not. Of course not. How could you ever repay something that is absolutely priceless? You can't. But you're supposed to aim for a life that is worthy of what's been done for you. That's your aim. Think about your life. Is that what you're aiming for? Are you aiming for mediocrity just to get by? Just to mooch? Lord, isn't that a horrible word? Don't let it ever be said about a Christian that they're a moocher. Don't let that be said. You need to be looking at other people's needs, not looking how you can get things out of other people. That's sin in the grossest fashion. You know why? It says, my God is not capable of taking care of me and I am looking for a man to take care of me. What an insult to God. Don't do it. Christians need to do everything possible to be self-sufficient. And when you can't be self-sufficient because you've stepped out in faith and failed some way but tried in faith, then the body of Christ will come through for you. We learn subtle forms of manipulation. We whine about our circumstances. We drop little hints here and there, hoping that somebody will pat us on the back and say, poor, poor Matthew, your life is so hard. Here, let me help you in some way. Man, take that same energy to prayer and you won't have a problem. So, well, Eric, that's just you. No, God's trying to work into you what you need to succeed in life because His goal is to equip you for the kingdom. Paul had the right to earn his living from the churches. Paul planted quite a few churches. In his day, it said that he reached the known world for Jesus. If he lived today, that would mean he would be in a Learjet in a fancy suit. Probably not. Paul would never do that. He had the right to earn a living from the churches. He worked his butt off. Boy, can preachers say that? Sure they can. We're people just like everybody else. He worked his butt off not to be a burden to anybody. Think about that. Does that sound like a moocher to you? Not to me either. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Well, how do I do that, Lord? What do I do? Thank God for more than one verse, huh? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Humble, patient, bearing with one another in love. Humble, patient, bearing with one another in love. Are those the marks of your life? I'll be totally honest with me. These are often not the marks of my life. You might say, be impatient, be forceful, make others do exactly what you want them to do. <laughs> that, that tends to be the side of Eric that wants to rise up and I'm working with everything that I have to cast off that old self and put on the new nature that is Christ. Be honest. If it were totally up to me and I were the little deity, I'd beat the gospel right into you about half the time. No compassion, 
No mercy. If I saw it, it was right, then it's right. And get it right, man. God's much more patient, humble, and gentle than I am, and I'm trying to be conformed into His image. But let's not take God for a fool. How long have you been working at this? It's required of you to make some progress. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Man, those words ring in my ears. One time I was in a church service and I was disappointed because everybody was standing and worshiping except one crowd that never stood and worshiped. Now, there's no formula for worship, but I had in my head and my youthful zeal at the time, man, it's President Clinton who was in office at the time, was in this room, people would stand in honor. And here these people are sitting half asleep in a church service where the king of the universe is. What's wrong with them? Not being very patient with my brothers, not bearing with their weakness and love, my very first thought was, I know what I'll do. Next worship service, there'll be no chairs in the sanctuary. You know what? All that would accomplish is people would be uncomfortable during worship. It cannot change a heart. (laughs) You know, God can bring about change in the heart. Your words can't. Your forceful actions can't. We have to be completely humble, gentle, and patient with one another. And Jesus, you know what? I'm perfectly aware that the reason that there's only a few of you in here that I've been entrusted with is because I'm getting to practice on you. If I get it wrong, you be patient. God's working on me as a pastor. If I beat you up too much, that's okay. God's teaching me not to be so hard on you. If I'm not hard enough, which probably never, then Jesus can teach me. I'm learning with you so that I can handle more. Just like you're learning with every event in your life so that you can handle more. Everything that you have today is to prepare you for more tomorrow. This is an ever-increasing faith walk. You should never be stagnant. If you're stagnant, you are dead and you stink. Dead and stink. That's not nice, huh? You don't want to be dead and stink. Neither do I. So don't be stagnant. Make every effort. Oh my God, it takes effort. That's the problem. Lord, if you could just give us a videotape. (laughs) Jesus, if we could just sit and eat chili and cheese dip and drink uh, Pepsi, (laughs) diet Pepsi, then we would do it. Now, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It takes effort, guys, to do this. If you've ever had a part in a small church like all of you in here have. It takes constant effort just to hold it together. It's amazing how fragile it is. And yet it's Jesus who holds it together. But I'll be darned if we don't get in the way all of the time. We can get mad about the silliest things. We can get upset and divide over the smallest things. God is trying to work into us things that you don't presently have. And we resist it as if something bad's happening to us. He's trying to put in you a character that is noble like divine gold. And we're resisting at every turn as if He's doing something wrong to us. Praise God somebody was abusive to you yesterday. That was a chance for the glory of God to sit on your shoulders, for Him to work into you patience, humbleness, gentleness, all of those things. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. By the way, baptisms is plural often in the Bible. This is one baptism into the body of Christ. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and end all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when He ascended on high, He led captives in His train. 
and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. I want you to get this. Jesus not only stepped out of the heavenlies as the Word of God, became a man as flesh on the earth, but he descended into the lower earthly regions. This is Sheol. This is the grave. And then reascended to the highest place where God alone dwells. In other words, he went everywhere that you can't go or don't want to go to do it for you. Your job is just to be conformed to him. He did this to fill the whole universe with his presence, his influence, his power, his kingdom. You get to decide today how much of his kingdom you're going to acknowledge in your life. How much of his power you want to walk in. How much of his likeness you want to take on yourself. It was He who gave some to be apostles. If you are an apostle, you're an apostle called by Jesus Himself, or you're not an apostle. A name badge does not make you an apostle. A group of deacons certainly does not make you an apostle. A denomination cannot call you an apostle. The word apostle, in its most literal sense, means one cent. Now, if Jesus is the one that declared you to be an apostle, He is the one that sent you for a specific purpose. And that comes from God. Some to be prophets. It's Jesus who does this. Nobody chooses to be a prophet. Jesus chooses you to be a prophet. Some to be evangelists. Some to be pastors and teachers. Why did Jesus choose people for these five offices? To prepare God's people for works of service. God did not call you so that you can impress people. God did not call you to make you feel better about yourself. God did not call you simply because He was bored and wanted a pet on earth. God called you because there is work to be done and you are called for works of service. Say, so, well, that was just pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles. No, those guys are supposed to take the lead in teaching the church body how to serve. Those guys are supposed to help everybody mature to the place where you're doing the same thing they're doing. You were saved for a purpose for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, I want you to dwell on that sentence for a minute. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What does it mean to attain? Attain means that you've achieved something. You've laid hold of it. You've grasped it. Attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Will you ever in your lifetime achieve the whole measure of the fullness of Christ? No. (laughs) No way. Not, Not by the longest shot will you attain that. Why is he telling you that then? This is what you're to shoot for. This is your goal. That in every way, no matter how big, no matter how hard, no matter how detailed it is, you be just like Jesus. That makes you mature. Say, so, well, I've been in the kingdom 20 years. I'm mature in Christ. Horse hockey. You are not mature unless you act like Jesus. And I have met people that have been in the kingdom decades that act like they've been in the kingdom minutes. And I've met people that have been in the kingdom a matter of months and years that act like they've been in the kingdom decades. Maturity is the 
willingness and the obedience to conform to the image of Christ in every circumstance. And if you are a whiner, that's a problem because Jesus was no whiner. If you are discouraged, downtrodden, never able to achieve, always discouraged, that is a problem because you cannot picture any of the leaders in the faith like that. Well, that's just them. This is the way I am. Well, God is trying to work in you something different. Somebody described this church like a Christian boot camp. I don't know how whether they meant that to be flattering or not, but to me it was the most flattering thing that could be said. Because in boot camp, you take people who have no common purpose from all over a country, you put them together, and through trial, tribulation, and training, they form a common purpose and learn to work as a unit. That is exactly what I want out of this church because that's what Jesus wants out of a church. For all of you to esteem Jesus higher than yourself. For all of you to esteem each other higher than yourself and to work at this with all of your heart. And every time, not some of the time, not only if Eric sees it or somebody else points it out, but every time you see a deficiency in your character, you work to correct it. Never accept yourself the way that you are. Well, does that mean that you're horribly flawed and beyond all hope? No, you're credited with Jesus' righteousness. You are called competent. You are empowered by His Spirit so that He said, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. But you have to believe that and you have to act like it. We'll read a couple more verses out of this. If you get mature, verse 14 says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. If you're changing your mind every moment about what God is and is not doing in your life, it's okay. It doesn't mean that you're a horrible person, but it does mean that you're an infant. When you are tossed from one side to the other side to the other side, God's doing this, no, He's doing this, no, He's doing this, that is a clear sign of immaturity. When you are powerful in speech and in deed and in love and in action, and then the next day, you wouldn't know you were saved, that being tossed between the two kingdoms constantly, that's an infant. Maturity is consistently being conformed to Christ's image. Every trial that you endure, you're being formed into Christ's image. doesn't mean that there's not deficiencies. It means that you're working on every one of them all of the time as they become apparent, refusing at any time to accept the way that you are. Verse 15, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is, Christ. From Him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each does its work. You have work to do. The first place to start in your service to God is in allowing His work in your life. You need to be being changed constantly. You are not mature in the kingdom. You are not filled with the Spirit. You are not full of wisdom, knowledge, and truth if you are not daily being changed into His image. This means that you should look back on the previous week, the previous month, and the previous years and see forward progress. It may be slow, might be an inch a day, but there should be forward progress. The definition of backsliding is when you refuse to move with the kingdom of God, you refuse to be conformed, and it's as if you were headed the wrong way on the right road. That is backsliding. 
Now, we think of backsliding as going out and committing sin. Backsliding starts with refusing to be conformed to God's image. He's trying to draw you further. He's trying to teach you, trying to coax you. And you said, this is just the way that I am. If you don't like it, you're not going to like me. You're right. I am not going to like you. And neither will God if you refuse to change the way that you are. So, well, I'm a pretty good guy. Most people like me. The closer you get to Jesus, the more imperfection you will see. I promise it. I promise it. I promise it. There are guys in my life that I think are so far beyond me in the kingdom, I don't know what to do. And I admire them with everything that I have. And they kill me when they pray. Because they stand up and pray things like, Lord, I am so full of pride. Help me. And I'm thinking, oh my God. If He's full of pride, there's no hope for me. I found out that to be closer to Jesus means you're aware of your weakness. You're just allowing Him to change it. This is why Paul can stand up boldly and say, if I'm going to boast in something, it's going to be in my weakness. For in my weakness, Jesus' power is strong. So often we want to be seen by others as something strong. That's a curse. The Bible says that's a curse. To lean on your strength is a curse. To lean on someone else's strength is a curse. To hold the relationship with somebody just because you want something from them is a curse. In Ephesians 5, I want to read you a sentence and then we'll move on to something else. Is that okay with y'all? Okay. In Ephesians 5, starting in verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Would you describe yourself as having found out what pleases the Lord? You know, when my son finds something that I like, there's a smile on his face. At the heart of every child who has been loved, at the heart of every child who has been loved and nurtured, there is an overwhelming desire to please their parents. You know, I know they act out in all kinds of ways, but they want with everything in them to make you happy. We should want with everything in us to make God happy, and there are certain things that please Him. The biggest thing that pleases Him is when you're willing to change and do whatever He tells you to do, regardless of what you think about it. We need to quit being risk assessors in the kingdom. Quit going, well, if it's favorable, I'll do it. If it's not favorable, we'll bog it down in prayer. We'll bog it down in discussion, gossip, phone calls, until the feeling fades and we don't have to do it. And then we'll say, God's told us to do a new thing. Yeah, we'll filibuster God. That's exactly what happens. You know, we tease about it in the denominational churches. The pastor stands up and says it's God. The committee meets and says we're not sure if it's God. And then the committee meets and says it's definitely not God. And then another committee meets and says if the pastor wants to do it, we'll fire him. Those same committees meet in us. God tells you to do it and you think, ooh, I don't know if that's God. If that is God, then He's going to have to show me some kind of way. Here, I'll throw out a fleece, another fleece, a third fleece, a fourth fleece. Those fleeces can't be God. If I try this and it doesn't work, man, that'll show everybody it's not God. Your thoughts wage against you, and in your reasoning, you reason God right out of the equation. Happens all the time. It's what keeps God's work from being done on earth. It's people lacking the courage to simply take Jesus at His Word and do what He says. And among those kind of people, I'm one of them. I'm doing everything I can not to be. I'm doing everything I can not to count the cost every time Jesus speaks to me. I'm supposed to have already counted the cost when I got in the kingdom. See, 
The idea of counting the cost is, I'm going to follow Jesus with all of my heart. That's going to cost me everything. Do I want to do that or not? That decision was supposed to be made the day you got in the kingdom. Something is wrong with you if you're counting the cost every time He speaks to you. You don't have that right. What you're literally doing is saying, I'm trying to decide whether I'm going to get in His kingdom or out of His kingdom constantly. Foot in both worlds. I don't have to read you out of Revelation what happens to those people, do I? Makes God want to hurl, spew, puke. Blow chunks. <laughs> have nothing, verse 11, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is the light that makes everything visible. In your life and in the lives of other people, if you're dwelling in God's light constantly, there will be areas of your life exposed almost every day. We go, wow, I said that to Mandy. I shouldn't have said that. Judgment's begun with the house of God. It begins with us. And you think, I need to get that right. Next time I see Mandy, I'm going to say something encouraging. This is the light exposing darkness within you and driving it out. But when that thought hits you and you say, well, Mandy deserved that. I might not should have said it, but I'll probably say it again tomorrow. You just decided to not obey the king's principles. You're trying to get yourself out of the king's kingdom. For it is light that makes everything visible. If you're in the light, you're going to see shades of darkness in you and you war against them. You wage war on them. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper! I always love that in preaching. I can stop, I can pause, look around, see eyes not on my eyes, see people dozing, and I can go, Wake up, O sleeper! See if I can wake you up. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Friends, the church spends too much time asleep. Asleep in the light is what Keith Green said. We're hearing the sermons. We're occasionally reading the Word, although I suspect not as much as we should be. Praying occasionally, particularly when you need something. And you are sleeping through this life rather than working in service to God. Looking for every opportunity to do something for God starting by changing your personality, your life, and your circumstances for the kingdom of God. That's where it starts. People always dream of ministering to others and they haven't gotten their lives right to start with. It does not work that way. Ministry flows from a home. If you're the only one in your home, praise God, it's easier for you. If you have a wife in your home, got to be peace there. If you have a wife and kids in your home, the way that you run that home is a reflection of the way you will be able to minister to others. And if your kids don't obey you and your wife hates you and there's no peace there, the Bible says you're not fit to minister in the kingdom. Let's get our house right and then work outwards. You understand that? Prove faithful over what He's given you and He will add to you more. But don't think you can handle other people's kids, other people's wives, other people's families if we can't get our own house in order. I think it's a good idea that we start some home studies after the first of the year. You know why? Nothing prepares you. Nothing prepares you for kingdom ministry like having people come into your home for Bible study. Not only does your home have to get physically clean, but it is amazing what happens in the spiritual realm when you know people are going to be there in five minutes. Well, Jennifer, I just... Ooh, people are coming over. We need to maintain peace in the home. 
You know, I mean, it will make you be godly, and this is good training. So we're going to do it. Say, well, does that mean the houses Eric picks to do this in just needed it the worst? No, there's only like five houses in this whole place. You know, we could have saved some money, lived on a compound, and been a cult, huh? No, I'm totally kidding there. Be very careful then how you live. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. Guys, if there's a way that I could summarize this, I want you to make the most of this life. You are hurling around the sun at unbelievable speed, making a revolution every year, and these years will not come back to you. Don't waste the time. If you're 25, 35, or 55, or 75, these years are precious. Make the most of every opportunity. Don't just let one day bleed into another day, sinking further into depression, further into discouragement, not doing anything. Make up your mind to make the most of every opportunity. You say, well, I just don't see any opportunities. Then you're blind. Wake up, old sleeper. You don't see them because you're sleeping. Get your eyes off your circumstances. Look around you. You will see them. Because there's a world going to hell in a handbasket and they need what we're supposed to have. If you don't see opportunity, maybe you're not shining brightly enough for somebody to ask you the reason for the hope you have. Maybe they don't see hope in you. Change it. Change it today. Change it right now. So that when you go places, people go, Debbie, why do you smile the way you do? If nobody's ever asked you why you smile... You need to smile more. (laughs) Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Guys, everything I'm preaching is trying to get you to understand that the Lord's will is more than understanding theological concepts. The Lord's will is more than just reading your Bible an hour a day or praying occasionally. The Lord's will is that you are changing that your life is sincerely drawing closer to Him, that when you identify an area that you feel He's not pleased with, you do whatever it takes to move into an area that He can be pleased with. That's what it means when it says, find out what pleases the Lord. Lord, you don't like it when I do this? I'm sorry. I will do this instead. Do that in every instance. It's not enough just to speak in other tongues or prophesy, but live like hell all week. It's really not. Not enough to claim you're saved and water baptized, but live like hell all week. Never lead anybody to Jesus. Never talk about Jesus. If you do, bore everybody around you because they don't see it in your life. That's not okay. People should see you as loving and generous and joyful and powerful in the kingdom and hard to discourage. Not as some frail flower that's going to blow over if a door opens and wind passes on you. This is not the life that God's called us to. Where that's awful condemning. Well, it shouldn't be. You can change. You can change today. All of us have to. I want to read to you something out of Judges. Judges 3. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. So you just don't understand the struggles that I have, Eric. My family and my blah, 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 blah. Man, somebody's always had more struggles. Always. You know? If your toenails weren't pulled off you as a kid and somebody wasn't burning you with cigarettes every day and you weren't being molested 
and weren't put on the street, sold in prostitution every day, you had a pretty good life compared to some. Quit whining. Go on Judges 3. Listen to this. Judges 3, verse 1. Oh, I'm in Joshua. <laughs> Sorry. Judges 3, verse 1. These are the nations the Lord left to test those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. Sometimes the struggles in your, are in your life for no other reason than to give you some battle experience. Why is battle experience important? Because you learn how to trust God in it. I can promise you, if today when you left here, you faced somebody who was bigger and stronger than you that wanted to take your life, and you engaged them in battle and had to trust that God would deliver you, and He did, you would trust Him more afterwards. And the next time you got to a battle, you wouldn't be so scared. You'd be more confident. If we quit running from every trouble in our life acting like God's afflicting us and start seeing these struggles as God working confidence into us, working power into us, working aptitude and ability for doing good into us, then it will be a building experience rather than a tearing down experience. You know, sometimes we sit around and talk about all the things going wrong in our life, not realizing that they are tools that God is using to work something good into us. Somebody told me their job was just very hard. <laughs> well, praise God. They wouldn't pay you if it was easy. That's not even the blessing. The hardship's the blessing. It teaches you to trust God. Your job's way above your head. Who hadn't been there? Lord, I got hired in an industry that I knew nothing about. Calling on people that I didn't know anything about. I didn't even know how to dress. First thing I found out is I was about 80 pounds too heavy to call on these people. <laughs> I had no idea what to do. That's the best feeling in the world. When you're at the end of your rope, it's time for God to show you. When the Red Sea is facing you and Pharaoh's at your back, you have no choice but to call on God. It's not even a hard decision. Praise God for those moments in your life. It's a faith builder. It's a confidence builder. It's God working something into you. Let's look at them that way. Thank God for the hard conversation you have to have with your boss this week. Thank God for the commission check that doesn't seem to come. Thank God for those things. For the job where you're scared you're going to be fired every day. Boy, it teaches you to trust Jesus, doesn't it? Thank God that you had to leave this job and don't know where your next paycheck's coming from yet. Must mean that God's going to provide for you, huh? You know, but I don't have any say. So what? So what? Are we going to assess the risk and decide God's not worth it? Are you going to forcefully push forward with God? Do you think when I preach these messages about one breaking the way and God going through before them as the king of the sheep, I'm doing it just to excite you? We need to live these things. There's nothing harder in this whole world to do than to start a garage church. I promise that. I promise it. We could start a church in Africa on dirt floors and it would be easier because it's accepted there. There's nothing harder in the world or more discouraging to do than this. And you know what? It's not for the timid. You have to be able to smile in the face of adversity. Look at somebody and boldly say, you are right, we worship in a garage and the king of the universe shows up and it's wonderful. I realize why God put me in sales. People think of sales as 
speaking with wise and persuasive words, being slick and tricking people into things. That's not what sales is. I mean, there are salesmen that do that. Sales is looking at somebody and saying something that is hard for the average person to say. Sir, I need $10,000 for this product. You know, I realize you've had problems with this and you still need to buy it. Whatever it is that you have to say, sales is saying something with a smile that is very hard. And you know what? Pastoring is very similar. Now, you'll run out and say, Eric said pastoring's like sales. I'm not talking about persuading people. I'm talking about looking at somebody and speaking the truth in love. You know? Saying, David, I wish you hadn't done this because that's wrong and I love you. Please don't do that anymore. It's not edifying. That is the hardest thing in the world to do. And it's even harder if the other person looks at you and goes, right in your face. Say, oh, nobody would do that. You'd be surprised what people do. People retaliate. They do all kind of ungodly things. And you know what the ministry is called to do? Be patient, be humble, completely loving. This ministry is just like a Christian. This is exactly what you're called to do when other people spit on you in life. I'm supposed to set an example. You're supposed to follow the example. Now, if you'd been told this when you got born again, would you have got born again? See, this is counting the cost. But once you made up your mind, you've signed up, buddy. <laughs> You're already in Vietnam. doesn't matter whether you want to be there or not. You are. Might as well make up your mind to be good at this. Or you can get out. The consequences are worse than if you never heard about it. Like a dog going back to his vomit. These struggles were left in our life to test us, to work things into us. Joel 2, 1 through 11 speaks of an army. I'm going to run out of time too, aren't I? What time did we start? A quarter till. Okay. This is on page 1014 in the Thompson chain. I want to read you the kind of army that the Lord is supposed to have. kind of army that the Lord's supposed to have. Joel 2, 1 through 11. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of Yahweh is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in the ages to come. Before them fire devours. Behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry, with a nose like that of chariots. They leap over the mountaintops like crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in a line, not swerving from their course. Boy, there's a whole message. They all march in a line, not swerving from their course. Every time do you face difficulties, do you swerve from your course? They do not jostle each other. (laughs) Lord, I wish we could get that one into practice. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them the earth shakes. The sky trembles. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. 
The Lord thunders at the head of His army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty are those who believe the Lord. That's not what it says, is it? Mighty are those who obey His command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? I tell you who can endure it. Those who obey the Lord's command. When you're assessing risk in your life, there's a risk you need to be aware of. Second Chronicles 24.20 teaches us that if you forsake the Lord, He will forsake you. Boy, that's not one you hear every day. That's not in the New Believer's Handbook, is it? The risk that you need to think about in life is the risk of obedience or not obedience. Too long this gospel's been watered down to simply believe. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is believe and obey. Your faith is supposed to produce obedience. In Jeremiah 42, we're not going to read it because I'm out of time, 1 through 6, the people say, Hey, Jeremiah, look, we know we've been doing horrible things to you, but we're sorry. It looks like the king of Babylon is going to come just totally whip up on us, which is pretty well what you've been telling us. Look, seek God for us. Tell us what He says to do. And whatever He says to do, whether favorable or unfavorable, we will do it. Jeremiah said, My God, you don't understand what you've just said. You're condemning yourself. He took ten days to go pray. He came back and says, This is what God tells you to do. But you're not going to do it. And you're going to suffer the consequences. And they went into captivity. But their heart that they said they had was whether favorable or unfavorable, we'll do what you tell us. Every Christian's put into a position where you get to decide whether favorable or unfavorable, will you be obedient to the Lord? You get to decide that. But your decision can't be based on whether or not it's unfavorable. Lots of things God tells you to do look unfavorable to start with. When I first got born again, I lost a place to live, lost all of my friends, wasn't sure whether I would keep my girlfriend who would be a wife at the time. That didn't look very favorable, does it? I said, well, it turned out all right for you, Eric. I didn't know that the day I got born again. Matthew got thrown out of his house, you know. Brad Lively got thrown out of his house. Most of the time, resistance came from the people that were closest to us. Favorable or unfavorable? Are you going to do God's will or are you going to be a risk assessor? No, the cost is just too high. All risk assessments should be over after you stepped in the kingdom. Count the cost before joining the Lord's army. Now that you're in the army, you don't concern yourself with civilian affairs. Does the soldier worry about how his bullet affects the economy? No, he just fires when his commanding officer says to fire. Your job is to be obedient. In Matthew 28, verse 20, you have the Great Commission. He says, I want you to go forth into all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's the line I bet you didn't know was there. Teaching them to obey my commands. Did you even know that was in the Great Commission? In Romans 1, verse 5, he says, I call people from the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. There's a relationship between faith and obedience. You cannot have the faith that saves you if there is no obedience in your life. If you're going to be a risk assessor, realize the cost of not being obedient, not being willing to conform. There's a price for being stubborn and stuck in your ways. To start with, you'll bear no fruit here. Secondly, you'll stand before that day without the confidence of having lived a life worthy of the calling. 
Well, I don't want to be there. The Bible says the righteous are barely saved. Well, that's not an easy word, is it? Romans 15 speaks about the purpose of God being the obedience of the nations. The Psalms speak about that as well. I want to tell you in Luke 19, I'm going to read you one and then we're going to quit. Don't turn to Luke 19. Is this worth another five minutes? Or are you all just tired and want to quit? It's all right? If you're going to be a true disciple of God, disciples don't just receive discipline, which is what's commonly taught. They imitate their teachers for the purpose of being like their teachers. In fact, the Bible teaches in Ephesians 5.1 that you imitate apostles. I'm sorry, that you imitate God in Ephesians 5.1. In 1 Thessalonians 1.6, that you imitate the apostles. In 2 Thessalonians 2.14, that you imitate the churches. You know what God, the apostles, and the churches all have in common in the context of the Scriptures? They persevered under the most dire of circumstances. You should imitate Jesus. When Jesus said, The prince of this world is coming for me, but he has no hold on me, and the world will learn that I love the Father and do exactly what he commands, you should imitate that. Not just imitating it for the purpose of saying you're a disciple, but for the purpose of being like Him. That's what a disciple really is, is somebody who wants to be like their teacher. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. Blooming where you are planted in believing that Romans 8.28 is really true makes inabilities a good thing. Makes your weaknesses a good thing. Makes them teaching tools for you. Makes it be a chance for God to work something in you. In Luke 19, I'd planned to teach more heavily on this and ran over at the mouth, so I'm just going to kind of skim it for you. Luke 19, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. What do you know about tax collectors? Hated people, right? Why? They often extorted the Israelites. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus had an infirmity. He was born short. You have weaknesses. I don't know what they are. Might be born short. All of us are short in some area. But you know what Zacchaeus did? He said, wow, I'm short, but God's provided a tree here. He climbed it to where he could see Jesus. It's a sycamore fig tree. Israel's often a fig tree in the Bible. You know what's special about a sycamore fig tree, though? Out of all the kind of fig trees, the sycamore fig tree is the only one that can't bear fruit without doing something to it. The figs grow, but the casing around the fig shell is so hard, thick, and waxy that it rots and you can't eat it. It never breaks forth. It rots, falls to the ground, and plants another fig tree. But if you'll take a knife and go and circumcise the figs, 
cut the skin off around the end, then the fig will burst forth and be edible. He looked at his situation and he climbed the tree that God had provided for him, the kind that only bears fruit if it's circumcised in the heart. That is religious Israel. And he climbed high enough to be able to see Jesus and Jesus see him. And then when he heard the words of Jesus, he was obedient. All this means, and there's a deep shadow and type here I'll teach some other time, but all this means is whatever your circumstances are, whether it's Babies R Us, CompUSA, Walgreens, the Pain Care Center, Kenmore, or Joe Rico's, or Stub Cycles, or wherever it is everybody works, you need to climb that tree high enough to hear Jesus' voice. Be obedient within the system that He's given you to work. And you know what? He will deliver you in and through that situation and you will see fruit. But it requires a circumcised and cut heart to do it. You have to be willing to lay aside your pride, to lay aside what you think is right, and do what He tells you to do. How do you know Zacchaeus got saved? Leviticus says, if you have robbed somebody... See, this word's good to know the law, friends. I know some people think it's not good to know the law. Leviticus says, if you've robbed somebody... Find out what the value of what you've robbed them is and add one-fifth to it. What's one-fifth? Twenty percent. And pay them back what you robbed them plus twenty percent. What did Zacchaeus pay back? Four times. He went further than, than the law ever said he had to go because the intent of the law was that you made restitution. He showed he was saved by fulfilling the righteous intention of the law. He showed it. Showed it right away. You can call him a sinner if you want to. But he did everything within his power to show by the fruit of his life that he had changed. I'm asking you to change in every area of your life. Use the tree that's been provided around you, get circumcised in the heart, and go further than you think you can for Jesus. And you know what? He'll honor it. Y'all stand up and let's pray. I didn't even get to tell you about Mephibosheth. We'll do that another day. He's a little crippled boy that, because of his infirmity, found favor with the king of Israel. It's okay to have weaknesses. It's just not okay to let them limit you from doing what God told you to do. So you're shy. Let Him make you bold. Jesus, we love You. We thank You. Lord God, we pray that You change us. That's what You named the ministry. Lord, I pray first of all that You change me. God knows I need Your help. I need Your help changing. I'm a stubborn fool sometimes. But in my heart of hearts, I want to be just like You. Cut away my pride, Lord. Cut away my flesh that I might bear fruit for You. I'm willing to be small that You might be big. Just show me how to do it. Lord, I pray that that attitude and that heart would be in these people, that they would not accept the way that they are, but they would change for You. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.